From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good afternoon. Welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for tuning in for this Thursday, December 7th edition of Washington Watch. Coming up, it was 82 years ago the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, pulling the United States into World War II. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The world is once again a dangerous and volatile place. But what history has shown us is that evil must be met with unyielding resolve, which Israel is attempting to do to Hamas, despite the calls to the contrary. The Secretary General urges the members of the Security Council to press to avert a humanitarian catastrophe, and he appeals for a humanitarian ceasefire to be declared. That was Stefan Dejurek, spokesperson for the United Nations Secretary General yesterday. We'll get a live update from Israel in just a moment from freelance war correspondent Chuck Holton. Speaking of the United Nations, a United Nations agency has unveiled a plan to regulate social media and online communications in an effort to, quote, stop false information and conspiracy theories, end quote. It's fantastic that we have increased so much the voices present in the digital space. But uh, this uh, system also came with some challenges. Uh, Among uh, some of them, today we hear these words, disinformation, hate speech, conspiracy theories. That was UNESCO's chief, Canela de Sousa Goida. Uh, Scott Shepard joins us for more on this discussion. And... It's that time of year again when we're seeing a lot of respiratory illness like flu, RSV, COVID, and pneumonia. In the United States, RSV is elevated. Flu is continuing to increase in most of the country, and COVID is starting to increase again after being stable for the past few weeks. That was the new CDC director, Dr. Mandy Cohen. While she may be new, what she's saying sounds like more of the same. We're going to talk with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of health policy at Stanford University, about health and elections. What can we be or what should we be looking for in 2024? Also, House Republicans have filed the resolution to formalize the impeachment inquiry of President Joe Biden. South Carolina Congressman Ralph Norman joins me later here on Washington Watch. Our word for today comes from John chapter 18. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, here's the context of this passage. Judas, with Jewish rulers and about 500 Roman soldiers around midnight, under the cover of darkness, when evil does its best work, made their move to seize Jesus. When they said to him who they were looking for, Jesus said, I am he. Does that sound familiar? I am? Well, look at the response. They drew back and fell to the ground, overcome by the power of his presence. The armed soldiers did not overpower Jesus and take him captive by their might because for this purpose he came, to give his life to defeat the powers of darkness. For more on our journey through the Bible, go to frc.org Bible. With fierce battles continuing in southern Gaza, the Israeli military said today that Hamas militants have fired rockets from humanitarian zones established for non-combatants. This follows the Hamas pattern of operating under hospitals and throughout crowded neighborhoods using their own civilians, own civilians, as human shields. Elsewhere in Gaza, Israeli troops surrounded the home of the leader of Hamas in Gaza, the mastermind of the October 7th attacks, who is believed to be hiding underground. Could this represent a turning point in the war? Joining me now from Israel to discuss the latest on the ground is freelance war correspondent Chuck Holton. Chuck, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to see you, Tony. So, Chuck, tell us the latest now that the fighting has moved uh, to include southern Gaza. 
I did an interesting interview today with a special forces soldier that just came out of Gaza and was about to go right back in on another mission. Uh, so over on my Hot Zone channel, uh, he spoke very clearly about the fact that they are uh, taking uh, captives, uh, taking prisoner, many uh, Hamas fighters who are giving themselves up. And uh, that partially is due to the fact that they're starting to flood the tunnels that these guys were hiding in. And so they're coming up out of the tunnels. And uh, of course, the seawater serves two purposes, to flush the rats out and to destroy much of their equipment, uh, explosives, rockets, and things like that. So it's turning out to be a fairly effective strategy, at least in the north, where they've, they've started to try it. Uh, in the south, they are pushing in, and now the defense minister said today that there is nowhere in Gaza that they cannot go. Uh, and that is proven by the fact that they have surrounded the home of Yahya Sinyar inside of the southern part of Gaza. Now, uh, they know that he isn't there, but they also know that it's likely that any hostages that are left are going to be somewhere near where he is, and or, or at least where he was. And so they're going to places like that. They're hoping to be able to free more of those hostages. Uh, they've found out some absolutely terrible things from the hostages that were released during the ceasefire last week, and that is that the vast majority of those women were raped, uh, and some of them many, many times, uh, even while the bombs were falling around them. Uh, they say that these guys, that these Hamas terrorists were, were raping the women and even some of the men. So uh, they, they are hoping to be able to get some more of their hostages freed. Uh, obviously, many of them are soldiers at this point, and the IDF never leaves any man behind. So, so Chuck, earlier this week, Israeli officials announced that five senior Hamas military leaders uh, had been killed, including the chief of Hamas's aerial division and, and, uh, and two battalions. Put this in context in terms of the overall progress that's being made. Are, are, are we reaching a, a tipping point if we take, you know, cut off the head, so to speak, of Hamas by taking out the leadership? That's certainly part of the objective. When they say they're going to take out Hamas, what, they're, what they really mean is not that they're going to remove the idea of uh, jihad. Uh, that would be a much bigger campaign. But what they are planning to do is just destroy any infrastructure that could be used for military purposes and to kill the leadership of Hamas and replace them with something that's a little bit friendlier. Uh, now, in order to destroy that infrastructure, one of the problems they're having is they're finding that the whole of Gaza is not as a bunch of civilians in cities with some military things sprinkled around there. It's actually a giant military base with two and a half million civilians living in it. And that's a serious problem for, uh, for the IDF because virtually anything in, that, in, in the, the whole of Gaza uh, has been militarized in some way, shape, or form. So whether it's a school, a playground, a mosque, a theater, a government building, even residential homes, they have all been militarized and are essentially at Hamas's disposal to be used for military purposes. And so they're realizing that the, in order to uh, destroy Hamas's capability to make war, they're going to have to go a lot further than just destroying a few military places. They may have to just raise the whole thing and start over. And obviously, they, that would take a much, much longer uh, campaign to accomplish. So uh, killing the leadership of Hamas as quickly as possible is their quickest route to some sort of victory that they can claim. Uh, and uh, the pressure that they're putting on the civilian population uh, is actually serving that purpose. It's actually helping the IDF because now the civilian population is starting to understand that if, if Hamas would just give themselves up and lay down their weapons, all of their suffering could end, and they're starting to blame Hamas for, uh, rightly so, right. than to blame uh, the Israelis. Right, which is obviously a key strategy yeah. here, but you have the international community. I mean, yeah. the United Nations repeatedly say, we need a humanitarian ceasefire, which is uh, essentially another name for allowing Hamas to, uh, to regroup. 
Is there yeah. the, the sense that the, the, the clock is ticking the, the, there in Israel, that they're having to move quickly to get to a point before the international community, uh, you know, is in lockstep against them? Or are they just ignoring that and, and they're going to finish this regardless? Oh, without a doubt, it is definitely uh, they, they feel that clock that they're, they're racing against that clock because that pressure is mounting from all around the world. But also the Biden administration is really starting to show its true face in this conflict. At the beginning, they were standing up and saying, we stand with Israel, they have the right to defend themselves. And now they're saying, Israel, you cannot take longer than the first week of January to complete this. We will not allow you to replace the government in Gaza with anything other than Palestinian people, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the, the problem with that is that the Israelis are saying, the Israeli leadership is saying, well, there's one other group of people that has more power over us than you do, the United States. That's our own electorate. Right, right. And the, the voters here in Israel are saying, absolutely not. We are not going to put up with more Palestinian authority in uh, Gaza or anywhere else. And as a matter of fact, today, the defense minister was talking very strongly about the fact that uh, the Israelis are thinking very hard about pushing into the north, into Lebanon, and pushing Hezbollah back beyond that river that uh, bisects uh, Lebanon about 15 kilometers from the border. Uh, and this is the, the the river beyond which that Hezbollah agreed not to progress south of uh, it, the last time that they had a war, and Hezbollah has not abided by that in mm -hmm. any way, shape, or form. There's also a UN peacekeeping force in that region up in the north that has been about the most worthless of all right. the worthless United Nations organizations. And so the IDF is saying, we very well may need to open a second front and go up there and do that as well. You know, Chuck, I would think as the reports from the, the hostages, as they come back and, and, and discuss their treatment and, and, and the more and more information comes out about what happened on October the 7th, the, the atrocities, the brutality, the uh, it is a demonic activity. It was just I I, yeah. I I I was up on the hill this week multiple times talking with members and just many of them brought to tears by the the reports that they got from the the the, the information. I mean, I would think if I were in Israel, there is there's only one thing to do that is to eliminate this threat. That's right. And anybody who has seen that 43-minute video that's uncut that was filmed by Hamas and surveillance cameras on October 7th uh, would, would be hard-pressed. You'd have to be unbelievably intellectually dishonest to see that video and see what they actually did, the actual video uncut of all the atrocities that they committed, and, and then some, and then turn around and say that there needs to be a ceasefire. I mean, that... If there was ever a righteous justification for violence, this is it. Yeah. And uh, Israel knows that. The Israeli people are not going to uh, let up the pressure on their own uh, politicians until they accomplish this mission. And specifically, those 200-something thousand people who have been evacuated from their homes in the north and the south, who cannot and will not go home until unless they can go home and live there safely. Right. right. And, 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 and nor should anyone have to do that. We wouldn't tolerate it here in the United States. They shouldn't have to tolerate it there. Right. You know, I was just thinking about that. It's October, I mean, uh, December 7th, 1941. Right. Can you imagine if people around the world were calling right. for a humanity ceasefire Chuck, after what happened at, we got, at Pearl Harbor. we got to leave it there. Thanks for joining us, Chuck. Always great to see you. Folks, stick around. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific 
specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us on this Thursday, right? Thursday afternoon. All right, so good to have you with us. See, uh, as we come up to the end of the year, this is a time where a lot of folks are deciding who they can support financially. Well, we would encourage you to join with us and, and partner with us, getting us prepared for 2024, which is going to be an incredibly busy and important year as we've got an election coming up. And your tax-deductible year-end gift will actually be doubled by a generous match that's been put forward uh, by some of our partners. So if you would like to help FRC prepare for the efforts next year to defend faith, family, and freedom and keep Washington Watch on the air, give us a call. i got folks standing by to take your call, 800-225-4008. That's 800-225-4008. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the program, a United Nations agency is seeking to control social media and online communications. But they unveiled a a censorship plan that would involve government agencies, regulatory authorities, and even the platforms themselves. The UN's Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, known as UNESCO, would have authority to, this is the proposal they're putting forward, it would give them the authority to govern communications worldwide despite being compromised uh, by leadership that includes, uh, you know, multiple members of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, the United States uh, exited UNESCO under both the Reagan and Trump administrations, for obvious reasons. But the Biden administration not only rushed to rejoin the agency, it has also already implemented many of its policies on U.S.-based platforms. How can we prevent the weaponization of pseudo-experts and bureaucrats deeming anything they find inconvenient or they don't like just because it runs counter to what they're claiming when they call it disinformation. How do we combat that? Joining me now to discuss this and more, Scott Shepard, director of the Free Enterprise Project at the National Center for Public Policy Research. Scott, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks so much, Tony. Great to be with you as always. 
Well, thanks so much for taking time to join us. Let's start by, by giving an, an overview of UNESCO, which the U.S., as I mentioned, exited during uh, Reagan and, and Trump's administration, my, Biden administration rushing right back in. Oh, well, and then of course the Biden administration would rush right back in because UNESCO pushes all of the whole-of-government initiatives that the, the Biden administration pushes. It pushes, and the UN generally pushes, decarbonization on completely impossible politicized schedules that would result in you know, the attendees at the UN and at the Davos World Economic Forum Conference and their, their pals uh, being able to keep their private jets and and become a, a global class of nobility while the rest of us live ever more constrained lives. Um, they're they're the, the, the people who run the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, that lied and lied and lied about the, uh, the pandemic and the lockdowns and got everything wrong. And that now we see um, also supports uh, 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 censorship, censorship in the name of making the world's communication system safe and, and healthy. But that are really designed to label as hate anything that supports freedom or opposes globalism and uh, and and stripping that out of, of public discourse. Happily, that's wildly unconstitutional, but as we've seen time and again, the Biden administration and the Constitution aren't really uh, aren't really kissing cousins. So, Scott, I mean, we, we, we've we've seen for years all kinds of garbage come out of the United Nations. Uh, but as you, you mentioned the World Health Organization. We've been focusing on what they're projecting to become the pandemic police. Uh, how serious should we take this threat from UNESCO? Oh, I think it's I think it's uh, freedom threatening and civilization threateningly serious because they explicitly in, in their discussions about these plans. They explicitly and re repeatedly talk about interfering with elections, talk about this U.N. body being the body that gets to decide what constitutes proper fact and what's conspiracy theory or misinformation or disinformation. And remember, as we just said, the, the U.N.'s wrong about everything all the time. They were wrong about the pandemic. They were wrong about the lockdowns. They were wrong about the vaccines. They're wrong about the effects of of uh, carbon on uh, on the atmosphere and climate, which is not to say that there's no global warming, but there's not much, and it's just fine, and we're going to get by with it just fine, except that they get their funding from convincing us that there's some uh, lunatic crisis and then controlling the results. And in discussing these uh, censorship plans, the organization talked about pandemic response as though they fully expect there to be more pandemics right, right. wherein they get to shut down the world. It's uh, it's genuinely terrifying all the way down. Yeah, I, I can't point to one thing that the United Nations has done properly or well. And you, you look at this and it is indeed a, a threat to to freedom. When you have governments, leftist governments, left leaning governments like our own, they use these provisions of the United Nations to say, well, look, we got to do it. The rest of the world is doing it. So yeah. they, they voluntarily fall into it. And, and, and I think that's the, that's the purpose of these things. Uh, forgive me. Forgive me that, Tony. Um, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. It's funny to see uh, when what Europe does or what the world does is important and when it is. Right. Uh, it's important that, that Europe was ahead of us in driving into the decarbonization ditch. But as they pull away from it, then Europe doesn't matter anymore. Europe matters when it's to the left of us on social issues. But when it's far to the right, right. on social issues, as many of the, the maximalist abortion states, then suddenly the, the European uh, system of 12 or 15 or 20 week limits uh, just doesn't matter anymore. So you're absolutely right. It's a foil used by leftist American governments to try to get around the American Constitution when the world's to the left of us. When the world's to the right of us, it doesn't matter anymore. And somehow yeah. the avatar of American liberty is leading further toward the leftism that's the antithesis of American, uh, the American right. idea. Right. We've seen that on so many issues. You mentioned abortion. We've seen it on the transgender issue and the surgeries. Uh, the, a lot of Europe moving away from that saying, hey, this is not a good idea. But the United States, the Biden administration, no they're still uh, going headlong into it. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, always great to see you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much, Tony. All right. Take care.
Folks, we cannot afford not to be watching and be on the alert. And I'm telling you, the United Nations, almost every one of their agencies is up to no good. And we've got to get out of it. We've got to defund them. And we've got to be watching them. All right. Next, House Republicans have put forth the text of a resolution to formalize the House impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden. We talk about it next. Don't go away. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us. Website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. All right, as I mentioned earlier today, House Republicans put forth the tax of a resolution to formalize the House impeachment inquiry of President Joe Biden. The measure directs the House Judiciary Oversight and Accountability, as well as the Ways and Means Committee, to continue their parallel investigations of President Biden for his family's alleged influence peddling schemes to profit from foreign actors, Ukraine, China, and elsewhere. Now, the House Rules Committee is currently expected to mark up the resolution next Tuesday with a vote possibly coming next week. Now, as I was on the Hill multiple times this week talking with different members, even the most uh, skeptical say the evidence is pretty convincing. Joining me now to discuss this is South Carolina Congressman Ralph Norman. He joins me by phone. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Well, always glad to be on, Tony. Thank you. So uh, tell us, uh, Ralph, what's in the resolution? What does it say? Sure. Well, first of all, Tony, let me say that uh, the umbrella approach of, of why all this is necessary is Two things. One, you have a sitting president of the United States who says that he's completely innocent, that uh, there's nothing to it. It's a uh, unwarranted attack by Republicans. Uh, secondly, you have Jamie Comer and uh, Jim Jordan, who uh, we have over the last since the Republicans took over so the last nine, ten months. Uh, have tried to get information, and they've been stonewalled at every level, from the Department of Justice to uh, people willing to testify, uh, to come and tell what they know. And it's finally paying—we're finding out what we should have had months ago. Uh, what this impeachment inquiry is, is about the process. It's not a conviction. It's just will allow the uh, the— testimony and people coming before Congress, uh, and it will give us strength knowing that, assuming it passes the House, which I think it will, uh, 
uh, when we go before judges, when they stonewall, when they will not give out documents, um, it would give us the leverage to say the House is behind it. We're following a process, the exact process they used uh, with President Trump. So hardly the Democrats, when they complain in rules committee this coming Tuesday, which they will, they'll put up every roadblock to try to stop this from passing, which is not going to – we're going to pass it in rules because it's so overwhelming what this man has done so far. To hear James Comer in private and public say that there are well over not just 20 LLCs, but there are uh, many more with funneling money back to Joe Biden. This isn't just a case of Hunter Biden, the son, uh, having a wayward uh, life. It's about direct payments that they know about now. But right. they've got over, I think they said, 80,000 emails that the, the Department of Justice will not release. It, the FBI will not release. Congressman so, Norman, it, it sounds like those that have been, you know, the president and those defending him, they keep changing their narrative. First, they said, oh, he has no idea about his son's business dealings. Well, is that information came out that he, in fact, was at meetings and multiple, as you mentioned, multiple emails, phone calls. Well, then it was, well, he didn't profit from any of it. Now that we have records that he actually got money that appears to be connected to it, I said, well, that was was loan payments. I mean, come on. I mean, they just keep changing, moving the goal line. Well, and even if, let's say that... uh with what the president has said, why wouldn't he want to clear himself up? If he's innocent, like he says he is, right. why wouldn't he welcome and volunteer information? But uh, they've got emails that that where he's using a pseudo name. Right. Uh, and on checks, there's no uh, – on the checks that he they know that he has cashed, there's nothing about a loan payment on there. Is uh, it clear – Congressman Norman, the president during the repeatedly during the election in 2020 said he had no knowledge of his son's business deals. You know, it would be evident to me, it appears evident to me, that he lied to the American people. Well, he lied to the American people. And, you know, you've got the business partner of his son uh, who he says he knew nothing about what he was doing, saying just the opposite and emails that that show uh, Hunter Biden with his father sitting in the room having meals. And the most serious part about this thing, uh, Tony, is that there's no evidence that taxes were paid on this money received, which they're going to be able to prove over $20 million. Now, would the average American be able to take in $20 million and not pay taxes on yeah. it? No. And the IRS would be on them from day one. Uh, That's the seriousness that this that we're facing. We're, we're up against a break, Congressman Norman. Very quickly, you said it would pass. I mean, you've just got a few vote margin in the among the in the Republican conference. You, all Republicans, you believe, will vote for this? I think they will because of the new evidence that James Comer's uncovered, and uh, I think they will. We will not get any Democrat votes right. that I know of. Okay. Congressman Ralph Norman, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for taking time to join us today. My, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, that is something we'll be watching very carefully. Uh, obviously, um, when you look at other members of the Biden administration, Mayorkas, uh, you've got the Attorney General, I mean, Garland, I mean, these, they're prime targets as well. In fact, I, they need to go. There's so much in this administration. It is, that's troubling. All right. After the break, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya joins me to talk about pandemics, elections, government. What do we need to be watching for in 2024? That's next. Don't go away.
Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas. Welcome to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us on this Thursday. The website is TonyPerkins.com. As I mentioned earlier, as we close out this year, I want to invite you to join Family Research Council in preparing for even bigger challenges and opportunities in 2024 by making a timely tax-deductible year-end gift today. With your help, we'll be ready to persuasively counter the left's radical big government, pro-abortion, pro-LGBT agenda. So give us a call today, and your gift will actually be matched if you give before December 31st. So give us a call, 800-225-4008. That's 800-225-4008. And as I've mentioned before, we receive no government money. We're not NPR. We're Washington Watch. In her first appearance before Congress in her new role as director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Mandy Cohen said last week the public should not be alarmed despite a spike of respiratory illnesses in China and despite limited information from the Communist Party there. The director's comments harken back to the Chinese government's deceptive withholding of information three years ago, as well as the eventual overreaction from U.S. authorities that led to lockdowns, school closures, and masking toddlers on playgrounds. The question is, have we learned from the mistakes of 2020? And, you know, forgive me, but I'm suspect as we move into an election year and we hear all these talks about rising um, illness rates and even triple demics. What's that? Well, joining us to talk about this, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of health policy at Stanford University and one of the authors of the 2020 uh, Great Barrington Declaration, which advocated for an alternative approach 
to COVID-19. Dr. Bhattacharya, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about this. There's kind of, there's some alarm bells going off. We see what's happening in China and we see, uh, you know, people talking about, oh, this could be a really bad winter, this uh, triple dimmick where we've got three different types of pathogens out there. What should we be looking for? Well, I think the, the Chinese re report was interesting, uh, in part because the the response of the WHO to it was so different than its response to, to, to the COVID uh, announcement by China. Uh, they sent a team out there and they came back and said, look, this is, uh, it was actually worth, this, 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 what's essentially what has happened is that there is a immunity deficit mm -hmm. because of the lockdowns that the China, Chinese had, that so that there are children that are four, years old that are being exposed to a bug for the first time that they might have been exposed to earlier, and they would have dealt with much better when if they'd been exposed to it earlier. And it's causing something called walking pneumonia. Now, we have ways to treat it. Uh, the, the levels were higher in 2019. Uh, the disease is not just in China. There's It's basically, basically everywhere on Earth. Uh, there have been reports in Netherlands, for instance, of an uptake in cases and so on. Um, so it's, I don't see this as a cause for, for alarm. It's just interesting to see how the media has responded to it and try to essentially bring you know COVID back into the to the and, and Is it and the fear-mongering? Is it the fear-mongering that they're after? Yeah, I, that's what it looks like to me. I mean, rather than, I mean, this is kind of thing where like doctors should know about it, epidemiologists should know about it, but there's no reason on earth to, to panic the population about it. Like, what do you do? Can you can close schools to avoid kids getting uh, this bacteria? No, the, what, the, the key thing is, uh, is to not make people panicked over something that is 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 entirely manageable. Uh, and, I, and I think uh, like even the triple-demic that you mentioned, Tony, I mean, I, I think the thing is, like, think about that. Every respiratory virus season, we have multiple viruses pass around among large numbers of people. That We don't have any way of controlling that. And we don't suspend our civilization every time we have respiratory virus panic, uh, uh, viruses uh, floating around because we know that that would cause much more harm than good. Uh, mo most of the people that are at risk, uh, we, you know, we can we can help with uh, with all kinds of uh, means to try to help uh, reduce that risk. But for the vast majority of the population, these respiratory viruses are nothing but a cold. Uh, so, you know, I, I I don't really like I don't really understand. I mean, I guess I understand in one sense now that based on what we've been in the last uh, through the last three and a half years, uh, what what people are doing. But here it's just panic mongering in a way that just doesn't uh, I think is not helpful. Um, and it and it's uh, and in a way I, I guess the WHO finally did learn something. They were yeah. much better with this than they were with with COVID. It, it makes sense in an election year. Uh, when when <laughs> to, to me that's my concern is that we're going to hear all of this uh, fear mongering in an election year, which is going to you know either make people stay home, not go out and vote, or allow the governments to manipulate like they did last time. But I want to go back to something you said because I think this is really really important to learn from, and what, there's not much introspection on what government did during COVID. And you talk about the immunity debt, the deficit. And that's why actually we're seeing this uptick in these respiratory issues. We're seeing them even in some of the, here in the United States, and I know Ohio has been having some issues there. But it's because we had these masks on, we had people locked down, and the normal things that you're exposed to, which you then begin to build an immunity to, we don't have it because we took this wrong-headed approach. Am I correct? You're 100% correct. It was very, very short-sighted. It says that the idea got into people's heads that we could somehow conquer all disease. All we had to do was lock down for long enough. No, but what actually ends up happening is that you delay the time that you get the disease to when you're older, and you're you're going to be more vulnerable generally. Uh, for children, especially, it's 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 actually quite important that 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 they live a normal life so that they can their bodies can get trained to 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 cope with the the pathogens they're going to face their entire lives. Our uh, entire Earth is filled with these pathogens. We we some of them are 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 yeah you know, we couldn't live without. There are gut bacteria, for instance, help process foods for us. Um, another uh, others are are pathogenic and actually can cause harm. But we learn to deal with them. Some uh, sometimes by vaccination, sometimes by uh, experience, 
and and uh, but to I have the idea in your head that you could somehow avoid germs forever is as 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 far from reality as one can imagine. And when you try to play around with those kinds of ideas and implement them at scale, like we did with the lockdowns, you're going to cause unintended consequences, right. unintended harm. And that's I think partly what we're seeing now. It's like thinking you can avoid paying taxes; they will eventually get you. Um, so th- this is my concern, Dr. Bhattacharya, that. So we know that. We, we now see this. We see this uptick, I think, maybe last winter, part of that as well. And it may that we may have a large uh, number of people that have respiratory issues because of this deficit of uh, immunity. So we need to make sure we don't repeat what we did so that we get more of this by responding the way we did in COVID. Are you concerned that that might be a response that we see? I've been watching uh, the UK's COVID inquiry with with considerable interest, uh, Tony. I don't know if you've paid attention to this, but it's been very interesting to me because a lot of the uh, the, the people and ideas that were that were catastrophically failed during the pandemic, lockdowns, school closures, mask mandates, vaccine mm-hmm. mandates, uh, all these catastrophically failed ideas, instead of like querying those and asking why well how did we get it so wrong why did we, why did that what, what was what's this what's the reason for the failure how can we do better next time instead the the, the overall tenor of the the inquiry the, the overall like sort of line of the inquiry is around how can we didn't lock down earlier how can we didn't copy china more um a lot of the official inquiries that have happened i mean like if you look for instance in the united states we, don't, we haven't had an official inquiry but we had for instance phil zelico wrote a book uh he was the former he was the guy that did the 9 11 commission report he wrote a book uh looking at COVID, and essentially it's the same same kind of lines like how come we the, the tenor seems to be well why didn't we lock down earlier why didn't we do uh why didn't we be more draconian you know draconian policy is not the way to manage pandemics that that was essentially what ends up happening is you cause catastrophic harm in other areas, and you don't even manage to like get out of COVID either, right? Right. Um, I, I think we have not yet had anywhere in the world an honest inquiry run by people like uh, most almost all of these inquiries have been run by people who have a vested interest in trying to make people think they did the right thing when evidently right. they didn't. That explains then your recent post on on X, uh, which I think you're no longer being uh, suppressed on. You you wrote this, quote, scientists embraced pseudoscience in the COVID era, including school closures and toddler masking. Scientists push censorship and authoritarian power. Scientists are likely the cause of the pandemic itself, end quote. I mean, I'm quoting you correctly. You are quoting me correctly. It's all depressing, um, depressing things. I, toddler masking I put in there because it's just so obviously ridiculous. Uh, it's almost unimaginable to me that uh, scientists embraced it. Um, but, you know, the context of that quote is that the, there was a Pew study that asked uh, about the extent to which Americans have trust in scientists. And that has collapsed over the past few years. Uh, and to some extent, it's a partisan collapse where, where, with more of a collapse for Republicans than for Democrats. But it, but for both groups, both Democrats and Republicans have seen a, a – scientists have seen a big decline. And it's fully earned that collapse in trust. Tony, I mean, all of those things scientists did, and there's been no reckoning, no recognition by scientists that that those catastrophic mistakes. I don't, by the way, I don't want to mean to impugn the vast majority of scientists are ethical and good people. Understood. What What I mean to say is that the leadership of our scientific communities made these catastrophic mistakes, and they're going around giving themselves awards, pretending like they did nothing wrong. Is it any surprise that the public has said, no, we don't trust you guys anymore? So the first step, if, in fact, they care and they want to restore trust in these institutions, which, quite frankly, I think is important that we trust our doctors and our scientists, but it is it's shredded. That trust is shredded. But would not the first step be to acknowledge, hey, we didn't get it right and we actually do want to look at this honestly and see how we can do better next time? That is absolutely the first step. I mean, I think that that if um it's been shocking to see how little of that that kind of introspection that you're talking about uh, has been done by our scientific leaders. Uh, even the new set of leaders who are replacing the old ones, you know, the new head of the NIH, the new head of the CDC, they'll they'll mouth words about 
uh, about like ac accountability and uh, you know trying to re like especially the new CDC leader uh, is going around trying to say that she wants to rebuild trust. And yet her actions and her and her words basically say, well, she just doesn't think they did anything wrong, really, that that they just, you know, somehow didn't fail to, like, persuade people that they were right, uh, when, in fact, they were evidently wrong about uh, item after item after item. The CDC in particular, what I, I hold them to blame for not pushing for open schools uh, when the evidence from uh, from Sweden and Europe was very, very clear, I hold them to blame for continuing to push for toddler masking when there's not one shred of good evidence in favor of right. it. How do they she expect to have people to regain trust when they still are doubling down on absolute nonsense? Well, Dr. Par Bhattacharya, I would actually go a little further in that, in that not only are they not regaining trust, they're increasing the suspicion that they're setting the stage to yet do it once again the next time they have the opportunity. Uh, Tony, I wish I could disagree with, with you about that, but I think that the lockdown, panic-mongering, censorship, authoritarian control is now the new template for how we manage uh, uh, you know, uh, pandemics in this country and around the free world. Uh, we, uh, if, you're, if you think that you have, your kids are going to be able to go to school, if you think you're going to be able to keep your small business running, if you think you're going to keep your job, if you think you're going to be able to have you know, informed consent for, uh, for medical products, well, I mean, I think all of those things that were like absolute bedrocks of, 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 of uh, what I thought uh, public health was about was, was to like essentially have proportionality uh, and uh, commitment to human rights. All of those things are out the window now. The new template is what happened during the pandemic. We will lock down again the next time there's a there's a respiratory virus pandemic. Uh, we will have pan, uh, public health fear monger. We will have the media join in. We will have every single element of the policies that we followed last time with, with, uh, will will come back again because it was successful. It was successful for the the group of of si small group of scientific leaders who were giving themselves awards and promoting themselves. Uh, it was successful for large pharmaceutical companies. Uh, it was successful for a certain group of politicians who cemented uh, cemented wins. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that unless there is an honest reckoning where you we look back and say, look, these were mistakes and we're not going to make them again. Here are the systematic ways we're going to reform our systems. So we're going to make those mistakes again. Unless we do that, that, that will happen again, guaranteed. I don't know if you can answer this question in the minute and a half we have last, but left, but how do we, as American citizens, as voters, as moms and dads, how do we keep this from happening again? I think um, the most important thing is that you can ask your leaders, whoever you're voting for, from like dog catcher to president, you know, what are you going to do the next time there's a pandemic? Are you are you going to close my schools down? What what uh, what guarantees are gonna can I have that the that you're going to have a, a wide range of advice before you make that decision? You'll account for the harm you're doing to my children. How, are are you going to, uh, to if at, at the national level? How do you plan to reform the CDC? How do you plan to reform the FDA? How do you plan to reform the NIH so that that, that you don't fund dangerous research ever? You know of the sort that we funded that probably led to the pandemic? How are you going to make sure that the CDC actually listens to outside voices? How are you going to make sure that the FDA regulates the pharmaceutical industry rather than be captured by them? I, I, I think every single voter should be asking every single elected official that question, because it's not like we can just go back to normal. That's not That ship has right. sailed. Uh, we, have to, we have to push our elected leaders to do the right thing. All right. We will do that. And they need to be looking to sources that will tell them the truth, which... We're right there, Washington Watch. Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you so much for joining us. Always great to talk with you, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Tony. Uh, folks, don't be intimidated by this. Don't, uh, don't let them scare you. This, it is fear-mongering. Is there going to be sickness? Yeah. Uh, but we don't need to go back down this path. And, and as Dr. Bhattacharya said, we we got to push back on those who are running for office. But number one, we got to refuse to go down this path like sheep. Make sure you're getting the real news. Make sure you tell your friends about Washington Watch. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, check out the website, TonyPerkins.com. Resources there for you. Until next time, I leave you once again with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing.
Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.